1: I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally, with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is the wonderful Anna Richardson, who has over 20 years experience at the heart of British broadcasting. She's an established household name, an award-winning writer and presenter. Now, Anna's TV life began as a journalist on The Big Breakfast, Channel 4's most successful breakfast show, and as a trusted and experienced broadcaster, she is as comfortable hosting popular factual entertainment shows, like my favorite, Channel 4's headline-grabbing naked attraction, as she is leading hard-hitting documentaries like Are You Autistic? With a particular interest in lifestyle and mental health, she is the author of two books on food and well-being, a frequent podcast host, and is also a recently qualified cognitive hypnotherapist, which we're going to get into. Anna is also the co-founder of Mindbox, a 24-hour online therapy center that specializes in supporting people struggling with stress and anxiety. Now, I am so excited to talk about all of this today, but first of all, welcome, Anna. How are you
0: doing? Thank you very much, indeed. I really am. Um, do you know what? That intro, I sound amazing. Oh, but I'm not like, who is that person? <laughs> who is that human being? Um, thank you. That's an incredibly kind intro. Um, how am I? I'm really knackered because I presented um the Rainbow Honors Awards last night and I didn't get until 3:30 in the morning. So, in truth, Alice, whereas you look fresh faced and absolutely stunning, I am a husk <laughs> of a human being. But other than that, I'm really good. Thank you. Is it a hangover or is it just tiredness? Do you know, I wish it was a hangover. Um, No, just utter exhaustion. And you know, those really long work days where, so just your biorhythms of not getting into actual bed until Mm 3.30 in the morning. So yeah, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm fairly shattered. So apologies To everybody listening.
1: Never apologize. It's still so great to have you here. And I'm sure you will be absolutely brilliant. Now, I want to start off by asking you about the start of your career. Um, You're obviously a huge name in broadcasting. And I wondered if you could talk to me a little bit about how you got into that world and kind of what challenges you had to overcome
0: to become what you are now. That's a really interesting question, um, and particularly with with the challenges. I think cast your mind back. You're way too young, but but I started my career um, in the early nineties in Manchester. Now I knew that I wanted to be in broadcasting. I knew from when I was very little. I knew I'd be on TV, and I knew that I'd be in television. Um, so I was fortunate from that point of view, in that I had a very clear direction of travel. Um, How I got in is fairly circuitous because back, certainly in the early 90s, it was very difficult to break into television. It was very difficult. So you either had to be a journalist or you had to know people um, or you, you, you just had to be lucky, basically. So I spent probably about, after graduating, about two years on and off doing unpaid work experience for various production companies, various broadcasters, which back in the day, believe it or not, was allowed. So I got myself into quite a lot of debt working for free. Um, And I just sort of, I had a lot of experience, but I still couldn't break through. So in the end, I thought, right, okay, I've got to do something about this. And I was signing on at the time. And very fortunately, I was allowed while signing on to do a postgrad in magazine journalism. So I trained as a journalist whilst signing on and off the back of that got incredibly lucky with the Big Breakfast. I um, applied for a job through, back in the day, The Guardian, which is that's how you used to apply for media jobs. Is literally you'd, you'd get the Monday's guard, media Guardian. You'd go through all the ads and try and apply for jobs. Two thousand people applied and I was really, really lucky. I, I got the gig because I was a qualified journalist. So that's where I started. So I started in TV production on the biggest breakfast show in the land at the time.
1: And that's so amazing in the sense that like, I always think it's really interesting when you hear from people who know exactly what they want to do from a young age. I felt like I had that, but I think that, you know, only just yesterday I was on the train back from Manchester and I was chatting to this guy who was a complete stranger, but we got chatting and he was the same. He was like, I know exactly what I want to do. He was, he'd just come back from a job interview But I think that that's really nice that you had such a clear vision. And I think that it's so um, unique when you hear stories like that, you know, apart from you and I, I don't think there's many people that I've come across who really know what they want to do. But obviously your pathway into that wasn't necessarily, you know, typical. And I think that doing it through the journalist route is really interesting because I guess, that teaches you a lot of the people skills and the kind of getting stories from people that's actually so essential to being a broadcaster, right? A
0: hundred percent. I mean, you're quite right to say that 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 not many people do know, in a sense, what they want to do or that they're very clear about what they want to do. I mean, I'm thinking about my, my little brother who is in his late 40s and, and he still doesn't really know what he wants to do in, in a way. And I think that's very stressful. Um, But fortunately, thank God, you know, yes, I I was very clear about it. But you're right. Training as a journalist gave me all of those skills to um, become a a curious and efficient, I think, producer um, of shows. I mean, look, the bottom line is what we do is, is, is we chat to people. We're interested in people. We're curious about people. And that gives you those skills to then go on and be, A really hopefully good broadcaster because you're actually interested in what's going on for other people. Um, I think in terms of you asked me earlier on about about the challenges uh, in terms of getting to the point that that, that I've been at and there are they are numerous and varied and I think the the biggest problem I faced in this country and in broadcasting is people trying to put you in a box People categorizing you. So, for example, at the time, I trained as a journalist and I was trying to get into telly. So to begin with, it was like, well, you're a journalist. You, 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 you're not into You're not a broadcaster. So I had to smash down that barrier. Then after that, having been in production, I wanted to, I was really interested in presenting. And then it's, well, you can't be a presenter because you're a producer. So you can't possibly go on screen. And then I got lucky and I I managed to get a break on screen and I did that for a few years and then my work dried up as as a TV presenter. So I thought, right, I'm going to have to now adapt again and go back behind the camera and uh, become a producer. And and, um, specifically what I wanted to do was a development producer, which is the person that comes up with all the ideas in television. It's the engine of broadcasting. And I was told, well, you can't do that. You can't do that because you're a presenter. And I've got the same issue now. Uh, now that I flipped back into presenting, um, because I was told again, well, you can't be a presenter because you're a producer. So I flip flopped. And now I'm slightly having the same problem, which is, well, you're a presenter. So why do you want to produce? Um, so I, I think that the biggest challenge is people feeling uncomfortable with um, the fact that you might have uh, a varied skill set. And I wonder whether in this country we're quite threatened. By that whereas in somewhere like America they would welcome it so here in the UK stay in your box it's almost like that class system isn't it well you're working class so you can't possibly mix with the upper classes or vice versa and we do tend to have this this tendency to try and keep people where they should be and that's very mm. frustrating for me.
1: I agree with you and I think it's such an interesting thing in terms of trying to keep people small and in their little boxes. But I actually think that a tipping point has really occurred because we now see social media and this opportunity to write your own story rather than have your narrative placed upon you by other people that are higher up. We now have people that are actually writing their own narrative saying, hang on a second, I'm done with doing that. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to tell my own story. And who are able to be, I think the word that people use is a multi-hyphenate, which basically means you have multiple career streams, you do multiple things. And I love this idea of people now sort of challenging the status quo. You know, we hear so many people now who have a side hustle or who are working a nine to five, but are actually doing on the side a crochet business, whatever it is, I just love this idea of being able to be flexible and do different things. And also at any point in your life, turn around and say, well, that was that, that was the last 10 years, but this is what I want to do now. And be okay with having a gear shift in your life. Because if I look at my parents' generation, you know, my dad went into an office, worked his way up, got to a, you know, a nice level and then you sort of, you know, you you stayed in your place so
0: much more yes. than people do now. A hundred percent. And do you know what? It's lovely to hear you put the positive angle on that. You're right. And and how amazing to have a label as, as a multi hyphenate. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. that's incredible. That you know, I'm a multi hyphenate. And you're right. And again, that beautiful word that you used of, of flexible. People are now flexible. And yes, we should be encouraging that. And certainly with the younger generation coming up, and you're you're absolutely correct to say that on social media, younger people, you know, your generation are going, I'm able to do a number of different things. And we should be welcoming that. I wonder whether maybe the slight resistance to it comes from perhaps my generation of people, you know, the sort of uh, Gen Xers going, well, hang on a minute. I had to study to do this. And this was mm. on the internet. So how dare you now say that you can do everything? So yeah, I mean, um, it could just be that that my generation is a bit, a bit dinosaur y really. But I love the idea of flexibility.
1: But I but I think that's, you know, that's to be, you know, I think at every generation they have this thing of like, but the younger generation are doing things differently and I don't like it. There's always going to be resistance, I think, in that area when change comes about or people do things differently. Now I want to ask you actually on the on, on you know on the topic of social media. One of the things that I'm really interested in, particularly with relevance to you being a broadcaster, is being a broadcaster now versus being a broadcaster, I guess, at the start of your career. We live in a world now where I guess you as a presenter would have instant reactions to what you're doing in terms of a show airs and within minutes you're going to have feedback, whether good or bad at your fingertips whether you look at that or not you know people are are giving their opinions and that's something that's really different to I guess the start of your career where you know you might get a review in The Guardian for example but it wasn't necessarily thousands of eyes on it how do you find yourself navigating that world of kind of instant feedback both good and bad in terms of how you then approach your work because I guess you have to be so kind of tunnel-minded in terms of trying not to let it sway how you feel about the piece of work you've created So
0: this hasn't affected me particularly until recently and I'll tell you why but but just to, to go back um, to the beginning of your question and how our careers have changed I've been in television for 27 years so imagine well that's a generation and it has hugely changed So when I first started we didn't have mobile phones we didn't have the internet. Um, so everything was done on landline, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll do that again. we didn't have mobile phones, we didn't have the internet, so everything, all our research was done over the phone or face to face. So it really was very much um, a medium of communication and face to face communication and contacts and research. So it, actually it was an incredible skill set to develop. Um, In terms of feedback on the shows that we were doing, you would rely on overnight figures. You know, how many people are watching that show the the, the night that it went out? This was, of course, pre-streamers. So we had five channels, you know, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5. Um, So it was a lot more contained and a lot more manageable. Now, of course, with our burgeoning social media and you have everybody's a critic everybody thinks that 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 they are a filmmaker or a broadcaster and everybody has an opinion that should be listened to and everybody's a critic i've sort of been okay with that for the last few years apart from the show that i've just done naked education where for the first time ever really in my career i experienced abuse online which i totally wasn't prepared for and and particularly given the shows that, I, that i've done and that I know for. So, a few years ago, I did a show called The Sex Education Show for Channel 4. I do Naked Attraction. You know, these are on the nose shows, but Naked Education brought about a, 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 an unbelievable amount of vitriol from strangers who'd kind of got the premise of the show completely wrong and who I suspect hadn't actually watched it anyway. And I found that very, very difficult to do with this sudden wildfire of Chinese whispers. Um, of um, negativity, uh, misinformation, and ill informed opinion. And that's been really hard, Alice. I, I must admit, I found that very, very difficult.
1: I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. And I think what's so interesting is you pick up on such a good point there, which is a lot of these opinions are formed off the tiniest of sound bites because our way that we engage with media now is so instantaneous and quick and you know sound bitey we don't take time to fully understand a concept really you know even I could tell you off the top of my head a number of Netflix series that I feel like I've watched by viewing a two second clip online kind of thing so when it comes to the opinions that people form about you and others and particularly in relation to that show which I'm really sorry that you went through that and that must have been so challenging it's almost that frustrating thing of you wanting to scream you don't get it you don't understand and just having to not rise to it, in a sense. And I wondered how, how you did that.
0: Yes. <laughs> I obviously wanted to, you know, with love in my heart, reach through the screens and smash those people, obviously, in the windpipes, um, but, <laughs> but was unable to. There's a lot of research at the moment out there about how distracted we are and how we have so many screens in our lives and so many distractions that it's really affecting our ability to concentrate and it's affecting our mental health. And I was talking to a psychotherapist the other day as well about um, the fact that uh, I think there's a link between the amount of times you post on social media platforms and how depressed you are. And that the more you post, actually, the lower your self-esteem. Uh, which I think is really interesting. Um, yes, I completely get that we have to post for our job. It, it's almost become a kind of you know second career doing all of this. But other than that, I'm I'm fairly limited with with my posting um because I'm very conscious of how of how public everything is. So to get back to your point of how did I deal with it, I made the mistake of trying to reason with one of the people um that was being particularly toxic and using actually quite frightening language. And I asked this person to modify her language on a public platform, because it was it was almost um, inciting uh, violence in a way. And she was furious. And, and this is where in the end, I realized actually dealing with anger online, step back, don't engage, accept the fact that there's no accountability um, at, at the moment in our lives. There's just no accountability from the government down. Everybody's angry because we're post-Brexit, cost-of-living crisis, uh, you know, post, post-pandemic. post Everybody's angry, and we don't know what to do with that emotion. So I think the way that I deal with it is to try and reason um, in terms of I can't deal with somebody else's anger, misplaced anger. So therefore... Just step away from it and don't get involved, I think.
1: I think that as well, just on the topic of anger, we also live in a time where the media is unbelievably inflammatory. So... What social media and the mainstream media are trying to do is create headlines that make people go, "Oh my god, I'm so angry about this! Isn't it awful?" or "Oh my god, this is amazing!" It's never nuanced. It's very much let's just have a really strong opinion and let's just run with it and let's try and make as many people feel something from this headline. And I think that um, what that's doing to people is really damaging. You know, if we look at I'm not going to name the publication, but a certain online (laughs) publication, which thrives off hatred you know that is this its sole purpose is to stir up hatred and fear and anger within people and I think it's incredibly toxic um and I think that your approach to that is therefore the best you can't reason with those people there's never going to be an end goal where you go, oh yes, let's both agree and move on. Great love,
0: <laughs> whatever. You can't reason with with the unreasonable, and you, you're you're absolutely correct to say that that we're in a divided society at the moment, aren't we? That you know everything is a polar opposite. You're in or you're out. You're for or you're against. You're with me or you're not. You know it's black or it's white. Um, there's no there's no middle ground, and actually the healthiest way in life is not to take extremes you know you can you can hold two opinions uh, at the same time actually and the healthiest way is to find the middle way is to have a conversation and to find the middle way or just agree that we have different opinions but that's okay you know let's just agree to disagree but the healthiest way is to have that middle that middle way reasonable way is is yeah. far better for all of our mental health and i don't really understand why the media at the moment wants to incite this kind of, you know, anger in people. Anger, anger can be used as a motivator, as a force for good. It can be used as a platform to for change. But what seems to be happening at the moment is we're not changing anything. It's not as if we're going out there especially and protesting against anything like the French do, particularly. We're just we're just having a go at each other. Yeah. And It's really toxic in this country right now. I don't think in my lifetime I've ever experienced such a a sort of palpable level of toxicity in this country. And it's really, really um, unpleasant. And you know what? We could go into a whole
1: conversation about that and where that comes from. But actually, one of the things that I want to tap into from that is this idea of fact and fiction. And a lot of the media is based off loosely factual stuff that's kind of made into sensationalist headlines. What you've based your career around is factual entertainment and really harnessing the power of telling the truth and getting into the heart of stories where the factual element is 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 the most important part of it and I'd love to hear what really drew you to that type of entertainment you know it's the, it's the kind of stuff that I love watching which is why I'm so excited to have you on because I love the kind of TV that you create but I would love to hear about what drew you to the factual
0: entertainment format. Bless you that's really kind of you to say Alice thank you I've done lots of different kinds of shows so so actually in, in sort of television parlance a lot of the shows that I do are, are, are called features shows. So they tend to be 8 p.m. lifestyle sorts of shows. Um, but something like Naked Attraction is, is a factual entertainment show. So uh, what I love, I mean, again, it's, it's it's sort of holding two ideas, isn't it? Two opposing ideas in your hands. Can you be entertaining whilst also giving factual information? Well, with something like Naked Attraction, Yes, you can. And the reason I'm so drawn to that is, A, it's bigger scale. You know, you're in a studio environment. It's it's a big scale idea. You know, it's going to be controversial. Yes, we have a tremendous amount of fun. It is hugely entertaining, that show. But part of the reason why I chose to do it was because I knew that it wasn't just going to be about tits and bums, you know, that it wasn't just a an excuse just kind of like snigger at everybody's bits and bobs yes we do that frankly but there's that that informative educational aspect as well um which we very much try and get in there Um, we want to break taboos we want to give information and we want to give that sense as well and this is where i suppose the transformational aspect comes in of um acceptance and just wanting to to give the education and the information so that we can all go do you know what We're, We're all different, and that's okay. So I think that's what draws me to factual entertainment shows is that I can have a laugh in my career, but I can also try and make a difference through information.
1: And particularly with that show, I just love that we are seeing very, and I'm going to put in you know, quote unquote, normal bodies on our TV screens. You know, I grew up in the age of seeing the skinniest of skinny models on the cover of magazines and that was the pinnacle and you never really saw anything other than that on TV or if they were, they were in a comedy role kind of thing. But, you know, concepts like that where you're really getting to the heart of normalizing all different shapes and sizes and and finding some comfort in that. and And again, like being able to be... Humorous about it, but at the same time comforting. You know, I I just love it. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And um, yeah, I
0: can I can imagine that it's really good fun to get involved in. It's absolutely hilarious. I mean, just just while you were talking, I was I was trying to sort of work out your age actually and work out. So you must be thirty. So you were a kid in the nineties, and then the yeah, t- so school. I was a
1: teenager. Yeah, two thousands.
0: So if if you track, if you have a look at how uh, magazine covers, fashion magazine covers and body shape has changed um, over the years and, and diets, for example, have changed over the years. You think about it, in, in, the, in the 50s, it was very much um, sort of you know, voluptuous. We were, we were trying to kind of have this aesthetic of post-war, everything had been very difficult, but now it was about celebrating sort of womanhood and curves. Then in the 60s, everybody got really skinny. You had Twiggy and all of that you know again the aesthetic was being very very thin the 70s it, it was more um sort of you know the hippie uh we had the 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 onset of you know um uh, sexual liberation feminism uh, again we sort of embraced womanhood the 80s it was all about that kind of like supermodel wasn't it in the 80s it was sort of strong athletic supermodel Cindy Crawford all that kind of The 90s was that very heroin chic aesthetic of Kate Moss and so on and so forth. So you can see how body shapes have changed over the decades. What's lovely about doing a show like uh, uh, Naked Attraction and the world we're living in now where we embrace every identity going is that for the first time in a generation, really, we're able to say, do you know what? Embrace your authentic self. It doesn't matter what you look like. It's normal. All human bodies are different. It's the only one you've got. Embrace it. Keep it healthy. Keep it well and love it. And it's it's okay. So ignore what's going on on social media with this you know, ridiculous idea of perfection. Embrace the body you've got and just look after it. So I I, I love that with, with naked attraction. I love the fact that we embrace difference.
1: It's brilliant. And actually, what, one of the things that I also feel and just on your point there about kind of women always being told how to feel about their bodies I think is a really interesting thing we're constantly kind of you know projected onto us this is the new in look this is how we should be looking you know we've always been told what's desirable and what isn't and actually I think women now are really rewriting that narrative they're saying well hang on a second this is my body you know we're, we're all different shapes and sizes embracing our uniqueness part of what I've had to do in my own kind of journey moving away from diet culture and stuff is recognize that the body that I wanted to exist in isn't the healthiest body for me, so I have to learn to accept. Well, this is me, and it might not be the exact version that I thought I wanted, but this is the healthiest body that I can exist in. And and even just accepting that for myself has been so huge. You know what I mean?
0: A hundred percent. But are you still not finding that people still judge you for your oh, size yeah. or your looks? So, I mean, uh, even now I'm fifty two, and even now I'm I'm shocked by how easily people will say to me, oh God, you're, you're thinner in real life, or you're fatter in real life, or you're taller, or you're shorter, or you don't look like you, or, or you've lost weight, or you, oh, you know, have you, have you put a bit of weight on? Those very casual comments that actually, you know, strike at the heart of your identity as a woman. I think it's very difficult. So I love the fact, you know, I, I really, it, it fills me with joy to hear you say that you accept who you are struggles all that you're okay with 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 how you look at the moment um i still struggle with it a bit even though i do all of the shows that i do i just feel bombarded all the time by people's opinion of what what me what i as, as a woman should look like so yes we may still have that fight on that you're talking about of, you know, I'm, I'm accepting who I am. I'm my authentic self, but my God, you're still having to deal with other people's opinions all the time. A hundred percent.
1: And actually like, I am happy with who I am. I definitely still have bad days. I actually think, you know, I look at the self love, but uh, you know, body positivity movement. And I think incredible go girls. Like that is amazing. I don't ever expect myself, and I I don't want to kind of predict the future, but I imagine that for the rest of my life I will have days where I feel really challenged by my body image, regardless of how big, small, tall, whatever I am, you know, whatever is going on for me. Because ninety nine point nine percent of my body image doesn't come from my body; it comes from my mind. So, regardless of how I look, even at my smallest, I had bad body image days, and I think that it's understanding that the thoughts that your mind t- tries to tell you about your body are not factual and actually we have to learn to disassociate that that connection of our mind telling us that our body is not good enough because that narrative the more and more you tell it to yourself the more and more you believe it and you start to believe it if you say every day you know you wake up and you step on the scale oh god that 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 even just that tiny you know behavior change of, of stepping away from the scale well you're not waking up every day and telling yourself you look like crap. You're not telling yourself you're a pound heavier. It can make such a big difference, and I think that that for me has been really powerful.
0: Yeah, you, you're, you're absolutely correct to say thoughts are not facts, and we know how powerful our subconscious mind is. And that the more you, your mind is always listening. So the more that you're telling it, "I'm not good enough," "Oh my god, I'm," "Oh god, I look dreadful," then the more you believe that, and the more that you are going to create that reality for yourself. I try and I'm very, you know, I know all of this, but, but I still fall into the traps of it. I think that that recently, and th- this is maybe useful, I hope, for some of your listeners, but as you, as you get older, I think one tip um, that is very grounding is to acknowledge and be grateful for the fact that we are hel- healthy. Our body, hopefully, is as healthy as it, it can possibly be. So my dad's very sick at the moment. He has vascular dementia. He's in his 80s. He didn't especially look after himself when we were growing up. He was very busy, he was very stressed, he didn't eat well, he never exercised. Um, and I, I guess that sadly and genetically, you know, this 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 is then what happens. He's become quite sick. Um, so I guess one thing that I hang on to is I see my dad, and it, it makes me very sad to see his decline. So I I guess for me now, you know, I, I'm now trying to take my health a bit more seriously. I'm, I'm working out. I'm eating properly. Um, I'm trying to adjust my mindset around this. And every day being really surprised and grateful for the fact that I'm actually, I'm healthy and I'm strong. And the more we can do now, I was talking to my trainer the other day about the more that we can do now, obviously, is is going to protect us in our old age so that, as and when you fall, which is an inevitability, you're going to be okay. You're not going to break a bone. You can get off the floor. You don't have to call the ambulance. So I guess at the moment I'm, I'm on a bit of a, more of a journey of aging and um, gratitude for, for having a healthy body at the end of the day.
1: And I love that. And don't forget, just 10 minutes of exercise a day can help increase the size of your hippocampus, which basically means that you are kind of protecting yourself against those cognitive um, degenerative diseases. So it, I it didn't is know really, know that. Really, important. really? Just 10 yeah. minutes a day? 10 minutes a day of vigorous exercise, 10 minutes a day can actually increase the size of that part of our brain that gets affected by those degenerative diseases. So it's really, it can actually almost like be a preventative mechanism.
0: And, do you know, my trainer was saying to me the other day as well that, um, look, you know, everybody gets obsessed with, I've got to go and do my hours exercise now. Or, yeah. you, know, and, you know, I've got yeah. to go to the gym, I've got to go and do my run. And he said, look, yes, of course, you need to be doing your, your, your regular exercise. But he said, even just doing the five-minute walk to the shops, you know, just getting to work, running up the step, just doing that, getting up from your desk and doing three minutes of just squats or movement. He said it it all adds up. It doesn't have to just be the 60 minutes pounding the gin. All of it adds up. And that really really hit me.
1: Everything counts. And as someone who came from a very disordered background with exercise, now my whole approach is if it's 5, 10, 15 minutes, it's a workout. It It doesn't matter if you don't see it as like, you know, you're dripping with sweat. That's not necessarily it, you know, reframe it. Just see all movement as beneficial and, and you'll be so much better in terms of your relationship with exercise. We'll be back after this.
0: This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world.
1: Now, one of the things I would love to talk to you about is hearing more, you know, we just spoke earlier about how our thoughts aren't aren't facts and, and kind of learning to utilize the power of our mind. We know that it's an incredible thing that we are all trying to get to grips with. And I guess hypnotherapy is something that's recently come into your life. And I'd love to hear what led you to get a hypnotherapy qualification It's actually something that I don't know a huge amount about. So I'm really interested in how it works and what really drew you to that as a kind of mechanism to help people with their mental health.
0: Okay, so I've always been a huge advocate of, of therapy and psychotherapy. And I've had psychotherapy on and off for my whole life. And it is incredibly valuable. And I love talking therapies. But one thing it never really helped me with was my weight and my disordered eating, if you like. So I had, a a few years ago, I was doing a show called Super Size, Super Skinny for Channel 4. And I was um, one of the presenters on there. And I was charged with um, the task of trying a different fad diet every week and reporting back to the nation on what worked and, and what didn't. And one of one of the diets this one particular week was to go and see a hypnotherapist called Marissa Peer, who claimed that through just one session, she would be able to help me lose weight. Now, I can remember standing outside her house uh, with the film crew and going, what a load of ball. This is just what a load of crap this is going to be. This is going to be absolutely hilarious. Let's get in. Let's get out. What a load of baloney. Went in. Four hours later, I had had the most extraordinary sort of session with Marissa, where I went all the way back to being four years old under hypnosis. She traced the very first moment where I had a big problem with food. Right? And I remember it, you know, I completely wiped it from my mind. But my my mum had been taken into hospital when I was four and um, to go and have my little brother. Um, But she was very, very sick. And so she was in hospital for eight weeks and as a little girl I woke up the following morning after my mum had been rushed off to hospital I didn't know where she was so I just thought I'd been abandoned and my dad obviously had to then look after me uh, and try and explain that you know mum was in hospital and it's okay she'll be okay but I was so traumatized by by the sort of loss of my mother that my dad to try and comfort me fed me he just he just gave me loads of food and sweets and chips and jellies and So my mum said that when I used to go and visit her in hospital, I just got fatter and fatter and fatter in front of her eyes because I was eating my emotions. I was eating the grief of not being able to be with her. Anyway, Marissa in this this session managed to pinpoint this this moment. And under hypnosis said to me, you're not that little girl. You're not four anymore. You're a grown woman. You don't have to eat like that anymore. You've got the, the power. You've got the choice to eat well. And she made me... Uh, Under hypnosis, imagine some scales that I was standing on and pinpoint the weight that I wanted to be. And in my mind's eye, I said, I want to be nine stone. And at the time, I was, I think, about 11 and a half. And I saw it very clearly. Anyway, came out of the hypnosis session, um, did my piece to camera, sort of saying, oh, my God, that was really weird. Two and a half months later, I'd got to nine stone. It was was bizarre. I lost two and a half stone and I got to my nine stone target. So that is the power of hypnosis. And off the back of that, I was so intrigued by it all that a a few years later, um, I decided to train as a cognitive hypnotherapist. And I have also done some training with Marissa Peer as well, who was the woman that I'd gone to see. Um, Hypnosis is incredibly powerful and it's about harnessing the power of your subconscious mind and your subconscious mind controls 90% of our actions. So it is, it it is, it is a tool that we need to be able to harness and you can, you can see great changes once you tell your subconscious mind what it is you want and you need in your life. That's a very, very brief, very brief explanation.
1: It's so interesting. And I think that experience, um, is an interesting one. And I, I think that a lot of us have, you know, you referenced disordered eating there. And I think that it's, you know, a background that I come from. And I know that so many people that um, are in my kind of online community have come from is that our relationship with food at some point along the way gets disrupted, whether that's, it becomes a coping mechanism, or it becomes a crutch in stressful situations, whatever it is, we develop these sort of challenging habits with food that can really be debilitating for some people, whether that's, you know, on the restrictive end or on the binging end. And I think that what's really interesting is that one of the things that I personally think happens is that almost we lose our conscious ability to eat. We're almost kind of in a bit of a daze when we, we, especially on the binging end, you know, it becomes a little bit less uh, of a conscious decision to eat stuff. It's much more kind of a coping mechanism as such. So that is so fascinating to hear about that ability to almost tap into that and be able to challenge that side of our brain that we almost think is like inbuilt within us and that we can't ever deal with.
0: Yeah, you, you've 100% tapped into that very, very clearly. Yes. So when we, we all have an addiction, okay, and we we use them as as, as a coping mechanism. So if we talk about food specifically, some people eat their emotions Some people will starve their emotions. Um, I absolutely eat my emotions. Um, And what happens is, is that you have told your subconscious mind that you find eating comforting. Eating helps you. Eating makes you feel better. Eating gives you the love that you're missing. Eating is comforting you, giving you the nurturing that you need. Whatever that happens to be, you're filling a hole with food. And your subconscious mind is basically saying, oh, you really like that? Oh, this is what you want. This is what you want. Is it this makes you feel better? Okay, that's what I'll keep you eating then because it makes you feel better. And what you have to do is reframe that through hypnosis and tell the subconscious mind that actually, no, this isn't helping me. It's hurting me. And actually, there's a better way that I can look after myself. There's a better way that I can nurture myself. And then through hypnosis, your subconscious will go, okay, I didn't realize, okay, you actually, it's exercise and eating well, that is the thing that makes you feel better. Okay, well, you should have told me, right, I will now adapt your behaviors that will enable you to then do the actions that make you feel better. As I said earlier, your subconscious, Mind controls 90% of what we do. And just very, very briefly, to try and explain this to people, and when you say that when you eat, you can sometimes go into a bit of a sort of daydreamy fugue state, you're doing it unconsciously, okay? So this is the power of, 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 of your mind. When you're driving a car, let's say you're driving your car and you're driving yourself home after work, okay? You've got a friend sitting next to you and you're chatting away to your friend and you're following that conversation, but at the same time, you've got the radio on. So you're aware of the chat on the radio as well and what's going on there. So the question is, who's driving the car and how do you know where to go? That is your unconscious mind. Your subconscious knows how to get you home and it knows how to drive the car. It's incredibly powerful.
1: We've all had that moment, haven't we, where we stop at a roundabout and you pull out and you go, oh, shit, did I actually even look then? Do you know what I mean? And it's like you did, but you're, you're almost in autopilot, that kind of feeling. That's it. Um,
0: it's, it's autopilot. So your, your subconscious mind is, is the autopilot. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: interesting. And I guess alongside um, the cognitive, um, sorry. And I guess alongside the hypnotherapy, one of the things you also founded was something called Mindbox, which I referenced in my introduction, which is a resource, I guess, for those who are struggling with stress and anxiety. I'd love to hear about, you know, we talked about some difficult stuff today, including, and I'm really sorry, I don't think I said at the time how sorry I was about your dad. um, Some difficult stuff that can cause you a lot of stress and anxiety, the career, the um, trying to juggle lots of different things, the getting the nose, you know, the family stuff. How do you manage your own stress and anxiety, and is that then reflected into the product you've created with Mindbox?
0: Um, that's a really good question. So, so in terms of uh, of Mindbox, I uh, founded this, co-founded this with a couple of colleagues um, from my cognitive hypnotherapy community, um, and we recognised uh, that there was a, a huge need for people at the moment—a a resource that was needed for people struggling with 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 anxiety. Um, in the UK. And it's it's only got worse post-pandemic. You know, we've got a mental health crisis. People are really, really feeling anxious. Um, so we set up this platform as, as um, a, a sort of 24-hour um, uh, resource, really, for people to go to where they can either use uh, journaling techniques, hypnotherapy downloads. There's also um, video downloads as well of, of, of hypnotherapy techniques that people can use every day, in fact, it's the same tools that you would use if you went to go and see a therapist. They can do they can use those tools from the comfort of their own home. So we wanted to try and just make uh, therapy and hypnotherapy accessible and affordable for everybody. So that's why we set up mindbox in terms of of how I manage my own mental health, um, I mean it's it's a sort of daily thing, isn't it, Alice? I mean you know I know all the tools and and the, and the techniques, but sometimes you forget. Fortunately, I'm very attuned to how I'm feeling. So I do a daily check-in when I wake up. I'm very aware of, um, there's there's an amazing poet uh, poem by the poet Rumi that um, was taught to me when I did a, a a mindfulness meditation course. And this poem talks about welcoming in all the different emotions in your life as if they're guests in your home. So you will sit there and say, ah, there's grief or there's sadness or there's joy and you welcome them all in as guests and you sit with them and then you let them leave as well. And that's actually a very useful um, analogy really for checking in with your emotions and going, I don't feel great today. I'm not feeling too good. So being kind with yourself, recognizing you don't feel great. If I'm really struggling with an ongoing issue, um certainly when i split up from from my partner i was really struggling with depression and feeling very very low then i will go and see my psychotherapist uh, somebody that i've known for 20 years um and i will go and do the work because it is work you've got to do the work in order to 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 move forward and get better I'll use hypnotherapy techniques, and something that's been hugely helpful, as I mentioned, is mindfulness mindfulness meditation, hugely helpful. So I've got a bit of a tool belt, of techniques I can rely on if I'm starting to feel really really low
1: that's really interesting and I think you know you referencing about doing the work is is the probably the hardest part you know I I thought when I got a therapist it was as easy as oh, I'll get a therapist and I'll do a few sessions and I'll come out cured yeah I know right <laughs> two years later and I'm still going and it's like oh god it is a little bit harder than I thought it was going to be but I do think that it's so important to hear from people like yourself who say you know, it's not as easy as just kind of it being a tick box exercise. Let me just go in, have a bit of therapy and come back out and all is good. It all is great. It is a constant thing. And, and in life, we are constantly on a roller coaster of we're good, we're bad, we're stressed, we're tired with all of these things. And, and actually, you know, an overarching theme of today seems to be like managing our emotions is a lifelong journey, learning to roll with the punches and to deal with all of the different things that can be thrown at us, good, bad, you know, whatever is is hard. And and just as you said in your previous answer, you know, some of us learn to manage those things in different ways and we all have our voices. But actually, um, you know, the most important thing is to let them in, listen to them, be kind to yourself, and and actually try and be a little bit less I guess reactive to each one and actually a little bit more just more kind of curious, I guess, to, to what each emotion
0: brings to you. That's a lovely way of putting it. That's a lovely way of putting it. Showing curiosity towards your emotions. We're human, so we're gonna have these emotions. And you're right, it's about learning resilience. How how do we how do we deal with this? And and how do we um become Teflon, if you like? And I, I guess what one of the things that I'm learning to do more and more at the moment is that when I'm feeling really, really, you know, crap, low, anxious, whatever it happens to be, is it's just learning to sit with it and to accept, and it could be difficult to do, especially if you're feeling anxious, but to accept that I've been here before. I have been here before. And you know what? I came through it. So what goes around comes around. Nothing stays fixed. So at your lowest, lowest ebb, and it can be very difficult to do, but it's just worth hanging on to that glimmer of hope that it it will come back round again. What comes up must come down and vice versa. You will start to feel better again. We all have. We all have. So it's learning really, I think, to, to have that as your mantra that I've been here before. I have got through it before. I'll get through it again.
1: I love that. So powerful. Now, my final question, Anna, is around your new podcast, which yeah. I'm so excited to hear about. So to end today's chat, I'd love to hear about where people can maybe hear a bit more from you and to tell us a little bit more about your new
0: venture. I know. Do you know what? Because you are obviously podcasting queen. This is this is fairly new to me. So um, I've got a new podcast, which I'm so excited about called It Can't Just Be Me which is an advice podcast. And the beauty of it is, is that we get a celeb in every week. We also have a psychotherapist in every week as well. And we have a listener dilemma. And between us, a bit like a sort of gaggle of girls sitting at home over a glass of wine, we unpick that dilemma and we give our best advice to that person listening. And it's been a real joy to do. And it's been surprisingly intimate, actually. There's something wonderful, isn't there, about the audio medium. It's an intimate medium and people feel much more comfortable sharing about themselves. So we've had some amazing guests. So um, we've had Kate Ferdinand in who was talking about uh, creating a blended family and the difficulties and the joys of of doing that with her husband Rio and being a a stepmother. Um, That was really interesting and particularly from my perspective, because I don't have my own children. So it's interesting to hear, you know, what does this mean as well for for, for women who don't have a family? Um, So she was fascinating. Um, We had Rosie Jones in as well, who um, talks about her disability and dating. And of course, again, you've got to then put yourself in her shoes and think, oh my God, what must this be like? If you've got cerebral palsy and you're dating, you know, it's such a visible disability. You know, what a what a nightmare for her. How does she navigate this? Something we take for granted. How does she navigate And of course, she does it in such a brilliantly funny, on the nose way. Um, so we've had some amazing people. Dr. Ranj as well, who's on at the moment, his story almost had me in tears actually, because he talks about coming out in later life and how he was married um to, to his wife, but just couldn't shake this 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 feeling of being different and not quite being happy and then ultimately through therapy explored the fact that actually he's he's a bisexual man and had to embrace his queerness. So there's been some amazingly honest and intimate moments and yeah, I love it. I love it. How brilliant. I've got such a soft spot for Dr. Range.
1: I love that man. He is amazing. Um, Well, I can't wait to give it a listen. And I'm sure that you'll have incredible guests coming out of your ears. So I can't wait to see what's to come from it. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Anna. It's been such a pleasure. I feel like we've gone all around the houses of it, talking about all sorts of stuff. And it's really nice to hear from someone as well who is, I guess, you know, you've been in the public eye for, I don't want to say make you sound old, but you've been in the public eye for quite a long time. <laughs> so, it's, so it's really nice to hear from someone who's, you know, worn that for quite a while and, and, and has got the experience from it. So it's lovely to have you on. And thank you
0: so much for giving us your time. Do you know what? It's been an absolute pleasure. And I love the fact that we have been around the houses. I hope that it's it's been vaguely useful or interesting for people listening. (laughs) Um, But you've been so generous and kind, Alice. So thank you very much indeed for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you
1: so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate review, and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week, so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time.
0: Insanity Group.